Alrighty, hey y'all, back again. This time we're going to talk about Immanuel Kant's critique of practical reason. And I have a ton to say about this, so I want, you know, jump right into it. Uh, but still a few things to say. If you want to find me on Instagram, you can do that at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. If you want to contribute, you can via PayPal or Patreon, which would be greatly appreciated. I want to give a thanks to all my patrons who are, have currently been helping me a lot. Uh, I can't name you all right now because my computer is on the is is ringing the death knell it's it's almost it's almost there so i can't actually bring up the internet at the moment um anyways uh anything else um if you can't contribute in that way you can subscribe like comment all of these things help a lot if you're listening to this on youtube you can find it on podbean for not for uh, through the links in the description or wherever else you get podcasts uh, there should be no ads there so that's good um, and I want to keep it that way because they're annoying. Uh, if you're on Podbean, you can find other stuff on YouTube that is the inclusion of some videos if you are into that at all. Uh, without further ado, let's jump right into this text because uh, I want to try to get it over in one shot. <laughs> but a lot to say. So I, I approached this text after reading the Critique of Pure Reason, colloquially called the First Critique. And as soon as I started reading this, I, I was very confused because at the end of the first critique, Kant makes it very clear that we can't be certain about the existence of God, about the existence of freedom, about the existence of infinity or the origins of the universe. If we tried to claim that we could, we would only be lying to ourselves, essentially. But starting out this book, he pretty much makes the case that humans are free because they exist with the moral law, or they exist um, following the moral law. And I was scratching my head thinking, well, how, that, how did he go from saying that we don't know if freedom exists to saying that humans are free and that this freedom corresponds to this thing called the moral law? So I reached out to a buddy of mine, and he was like, yeah, well, you got to read the groundwork for the metaphysics of moral or groundwork of the metaphysic of morals. So I did. Um, so you can find that on here. Now, I would imagine if any of you are listening to this, you probably didn't even consider the groundwork. Go and listen to that one because I expound upon the transition from the critique of pure reason to the critique of practical reason a little bit more. But I'm still going to give you a little bit of an overview here uh, because I, you know, otherwise it's really confusing. So I want to try and explain how Kant can justify the existence of freedom and moreover what he'll come to call God in this text, uh, considering what he says in the first critique. <clears throat> so if you don't know, which you, you know, I would hope that you'd go and read the, the first critique or the critique of pure reason. If you don't know, and I'll be very quick about this, he says that as humans, we only have a grasp of what he calls the phenomenal world, which is the world that appears to us via our senses. Now, with what he calls the understanding, 
we make sense of what comes into us through the senses, which we can then transform into reason or, or apply via reason. So this is kind of the base of the possibility of knowledge. So knowledge comes to us not from some god per se, uh, even though some some Kantians out there would criticize my kind of simplistic way of putting that. But if I just want to say, you know, it'd be for the sake of brevity, I just want to say that it doesn't come from some transcendent being. It is something that comes about through our experiences on the earth in, in, in our lives. So things like our history, uh, you know, our, our physical compositions, our psychological compositions determine how we will interact with things in the world, which was a pretty radical idea at the time. And I think even today it's, um, it's still quite radical. So he sets that out and he says, okay, since we can only see things as appearances, that is, as they are mediated to us through our senses, we can then speculate, and he's he really emphasizes this, we can only speculate that beneath the appearances is a transcendent object, what he calls a noumenon, from which the appearance emanates. Now, we can have no purchase on that noumenon. We, we have no idea what it is what it looks like, or anything. We just know it's out there. And it exists outside of our conceptions of space and time. It really is transcendent. And because it's transcendent, we can't get a grasp of it. Because like I said, all our knowledge derives from experiences in the phenomenal world. So for us to claim we could go beyond that is total sophistry or illusion, as he as he calls it. So... One of the things that he kind of emphasizes is that this world of appearances corresponds to a fundamental law, and this is the law of cause and effect, which is a pretty simple law, but it's interesting when you put it into thought, where he says, and he's quite right, nothing in this world, that is the phenomenal world, can be explained without a cause. So there's no effect that exists without a cause. There's nothing in this world that hasn't been caused by something that can be effectively traced. And because of that, we don't have freedom in this world, which is kind of how he leaves us at the end of the first critique, which is why when I started the second critique, I was so confused as to why he was saying we are free. So the reason he says that we are free is because we as humans experience the world, but we as humans because like everything else, we are noumena. So we can't actually see our own noumena. We can't actually see our own thing in itself. If we ever do turn our gaze onto ourselves, we're only still uh, mediating that experience through our senses. So like if we look at a, a brain chart, you know, we're still only seeing physical compositions that we make sense of via our um, you know, our brains, if we're seeing something or hearing, I don't know, some auditory scientific barometer or something. Uh, so we only experience the world via our senses. Now, beneath that, there must be, like everything else in the human, a noumena. And he says that the noumena are free because they do not, as far as we know, abide by the principle of cause and effect or the law of cause and effect. And it is from these noumena that the possibility of the phenomenal world comes. 
because these are what the, the noumena are what exist underneath uh, appearances or underneath phenomena. And we can only assume then that they are free. And this freedom, this freedom is exactly what he calls the moral law. Because this freedom acts in any way that it wants. And because it is transcendent, it exists, you know, away from all our perceptions, our possibility of cognizing it in any way, it must have some kind of uh, principle that we, we can't know, but he'll come to explain how we can, you know, approach it. We can't know it right off the bat, but we can assume that it's there. There's some kind of structure, and he calls this structure the moral law, that is almost pure freedom. It exists almost of its own accord, and whatever it does is the moral law. Now, this is an argument that he kind of unravels throughout the first half of the book, but I saw it necessary to present it right away so that we could have a strong base to go into this. Now, for the actual book itself. It's called The Critique of Practical Reason, and what he means by that is that he's critiquing practical reason. Now, practical reason is the effort to try and explain laws or, you know, universal truths through experience, through practical reason, the application of reason to the world, which he says we can't do. We cannot do that because we can't extrapolate from disparate experiences and disparate events universal laws because they do not lend themselves to a kind of overarching narrative. So instead, what he counters to that is pure practical reason. So he wants to apply reason against experience to say, okay, what is it in experience, even though this isn't the the trajectory that he takes, it is fundamentally where he ends up, what is it in experience that we can see, or where in experience can we see the possibility of a universal law, which is what comes out to be the categorical imperative, which we'll explain when we get there. But in his words, what the pure practical law does is it prescribes to maxims, which are maxims are our own personal opinions or beliefs uh, that can't be extended to a universal law. So one of my maxims is maybe um, I eat, eating's a bad one, I, I like to run. And I make it my habit to run, you know, a few times every week, um, which is one of my maxims. But I couldn't possibly prescribe that to everyone on earth. So therefore, I couldn't call it a universal law. So he says that a pure practical law is a law that prescribes to maxims merely their form without regard to an object, which is tricky. And we're going to we're going to unpack that a little bit. But again, I'm trying to set the, the tone here. So his problem with practical reason is that it claims to find practical notions of good and evil merely on experienced consequences, which is like what I said, it's trying to look for these kind of universal principles or laws in experience, which it can't do. So as the book starts, he he says that freedom is the capacity to be free from cause and effect, which is not open to any of us. None of us are free from cause and effect, but as he speculates, the noumena are, right? So we can't, can't lose sight of that. It's only in terms of noumena, not anything we can experience or see, that is free. Which doesn't mean that we know what freedom is. So we, we have to be careful that we can't just like claim to know freedom. 
And there, there are a number of videos explaining this book or explaining the categorical imperative that, and it's impossible not to, but they rely very heavily on real world examples to apparently demonstrate the categorical imperative, like sacrificing one's life, you know, to save, um, you know, a busload of people or something, which is incredibly wrong. And it, it needs to be nuanced to, you know, to be, in my mind, faithful to what Kant had in mind. So we know that there are noumena, uh, speculatively. At least that was shown in the first critique. Now he wants to show practically how we can believe that there's a noumenon. How in our actions and in our very propensity to act. So we're talking about the form here, not any specific examples or any, any kind of specific content. We're talking about the very form of the possibility of something like a maxim or like a law that points to the existence of some kind of underneath a noumenon of that possibility. Or in his words, practical reason assures reality to a super sensible object, an object that exists as a noumenon, uh, of the category of of the category of causality vis-a-vis freedom. So it is free from causality, cause and effect. So like I said, humans hold a very special position. You know, we are both experiencers of the world through as as phenomena, and we abide by the law of cause and effect, but we are also free in that we are a noumena, because from beneath us that we can't see are noumena. So we then uh, embody a capacity for freedom that manifests itself in practical forms that we can only arrive at through kind of practical reason. But he says he's going to show the shortcomings of that, uh, at least when it's not tied with um, pure reason or speculative reason. God, this is a this is a this is a dense one. Um, he's going to show the limitations of that because without pure reason or without the application of a priori principles, which is just reason that is devoid of any kind of experience, then we cannot extract any kind of universal laws from the practical side of reason alone. So that propels us here into book one, the analytic of pure reason, or sorry, of pure practical reason, like the analytic of uh, pure reason in um, the first critique, the critique of pure reason. So he says, starting out here, that practical principles are propositions which contain a general determination of the will. So these are subjective maxims, and they are a demonstration of what we as humans have the capacity for, and that is the capacity for willing something. And this willing something, this capacity to will, must come from somewhere. And he will, spoiler alert, say it's the moral law, and it's that capacity for freedom. And so insofar as pure reason can speculate the existence of pure uh, of practical laws, so these kinds of uh, maxims as laws, of the determination of the will, there must be laws. It's kind of circular, but anyways. So if a subjective maxim, or if a maxim, can be proven to be practically right, it can become a law. But we can't. there are no examples of this. So instead, we are only concerned with the form, the very possibility of the maxim itself, that we can be sure exists, and that we can therefore be sure derives from something that is the moral law or freedom. 
but for something to be a law makes it an imperative. Now, there are two kinds of imperatives. There is either a hypothetical imperative or a categorical imperative. A hypothetical imperative makes the object of the act exterior to the act itself. So, for example, um, if you might tell a child, you know, if you act good at, at your uh, grandparents' house, then you can go to McDonald's or something, wherever people like to go. Um, so that's a hypothetical imperative because it promises something that is exterior, i.e. McDonald's, that is uh, distinct from the very act itself. Now, he contrasts this with a categorical imperative where the very imperative, the only promise that it offers is the fact that you actually get to do that act in the first place. So it points back to itself, where itself is the end. So you do something not for something else, but just to do it. So it's a, a, a perfect duty. It's one that you do just for the sake of doing it. And therefore, a categorical imperative is the only one that is adequate at determining the will. Now, for more on the categorical imperative, you should really go read the groundwork of the metaphysic of morals or listen to what I did on it, uh, because he, he really goes into it uh, in more detail there. Uh, but anyways, so unlike a hypothetical imperative that plays into one's desires, so they know the kid wants McDonald's because it tastes good, um, it is then, you know, only empirical. It doesn't have any relationship per se to the will or to anything that might be considered noumenal, that is transcendent or that escapes the boundaries of the phenomenal world because it relies solely on the person's own wants and desires, which are entirely subjective. And because, you know, a proper determination of the will through the categorical imperative cannot be uh, cannot be arrived at through experience, it then breaks away from the phenomenal world. It then breaks away from the confines of cause and effect, you know, the kind of cause and effect that would determine someone's own desires in the world, the things they like, the things they don't like, which aren't bestowed upon them by God. They are things that they come, they come to acquire through experience. It is only then, you know, that when it only points to the will itself or to the act itself, that it can be considered a law or a true determination of the will. So this is how he's applying pure practical uh, reason. So it's not pure reason because he's pointing to the existence of things one ought to do in the world in the form of maxims, you know, your own subjective principles that can be interpreted as laws, you know, through this proper categorical imperative. So he's not talking about just reason alone, nor is he talking about synthetic reason or uh, a posteriori reason, you know, reason that you arrive at through experience. He's bridging the two here, because on their own, neither would be satisfactory at giving us um, a kind of account of the possibility of a universal law. So, you know, at his time, he was really responding to the rationalists and the empiricists. So you had the rationalists saying, oh, I can explain anything just with my mind. You know, I know that one plus one equals two, and I can extrapolate from that pure laws of the world by sitting in my bathtub. <laughs> Anyways, uh, or you have the empiricists that are like, no, we have to experiment. 
uh, and find out you know true laws from from experimentation and and testing the world. Now neither is satisfactory for Kant because pure reason just arrives at impasses as he showed in the first critique and practical reason or synthetic reason that is empirical can't derive fundamental true laws from looking at different things in the world and one example of this is from a book i read just recently is the difficulty of trying to come up with a law for the movement of water if we aren't working under perfect conditions so if you look at a river and this river is you know, it, it carved the surface of the earth, and through that it has made jagged edges that can't be measured very easily. Uh, and at different places, it flows at different speeds. At some points, its viscosity might be different because there might be more mud. Uh, there might be rocks underneath that, that hinder its, its movement. There, are, there might be fish around. It is impossible to come up with a universal law about the movement of water or water itself by looking at it or experiencing it in the world. So humans aren't divine. We can't look at the world and then come up with the, you know, pure principles right off the right off the bat. Only if God existed, only God could do that. And we know, or we don't know, sorry. We well, we do kind of know. We are hindered as humans because we exist in the phenomenal world. We don't have any access to truth or God or, you know, the origins of the universe. We don't know any of that stuff. But we do know that we, you know, derive any possible truths from experience. And we, you know, we have to always take them with a grain of salt. Whereas if a God existed, we would know then that anything God did would comply exactly with the moral law. Because God exists in the realm of the noumena, realm of the noumenon, that is, that belongs to the realm of the moral law, or that the moral law is found within so anything God does is what is called in the groundwork of the metaphysic of morals, a kind of holy, holy law or a holy duty. I'm forgetting. Uh, go, go listen to it. Um, in that any one of its actions complies immediately to universal law. Whereas as humans, we are flawed. Not everything we do complies to the universal law because we get we have our desires get in the way. So let's say, for example, and we're going to come back to this a little a few more times throughout the course of the book um let's say we happen to do something that complied with the moral law and i'm not going to give an example because that would buttress the entire the entire thing um even though he gives a i think a somewhat decent one at the end but let's not venture an example let's say hypothetically we did something that complied with the moral law that might and there's a big might might produce gratification in a physical way, one that, you know, is sensible. That is, it traverses, it breaks the boundary between the noumenon and the phenomenon. But we can't know that for sure. And we should never assume that if we do something and we feel good, that it then means that it somehow satisfied the moral law. Because we don't know if our satisfying the moral law will make us feel good. In fact, it might make us feel terrible because it might go against absolutely everything we know about our experiencing experiences of the world. So how can we possibly surmise that freedom exists? So if, you know, you've been listening closely, you might say, well, David, I thought you said everything abides by the law of cause and effect. So how could we then say that we are acting of our own free will to satisfy the will? 
You know, if everything is always determined by cause and effect, where where is our uh, capacity for freedom? And he says, well, it it would seem impossible or very unlikely that someone with like the utmost scientific or analytic rigor could actually tell the future. So we know that everything operates by the law of cause and effect. But on the other hand, it seems impossible that we could actually tell what's going to happen. Which seems strange, because if everything just follows this ostensibly extremely clear you know, principle of cause and effect, it would seem as though by tracing the trajectory of causes, we could you know, adequately with, you know, with almost 100% certainty predict, you know, what will happen next. But the key word in there is almost. So if I take a pen and I let it go from my hand and let it fall to the earth, I know from experience, I know from all of my, you know, experiences with this thing called cause and effect that it's going to land and hit the ground. But can I say with 100% certainty that that will be the case? Can I say that at the last moment my cat won't run underneath it and then and then catch it or you know it won't fall in the cat or 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 something or it will you know completely uh disperse in space-time continuum as we know it. That's kind of a extreme example, but anyways, we can't know with 100% certainty. And so Kant says isn't that interesting? And that might mean and it it's you know he's shooting for the stars here he's like that leaves the tiniest sliver of hope that in any given moment we might have some degree of freedom we might have some capacity to choose that is free from the domain of cause and effect because we as humans exist in both worlds the noumenal and the phenomenal world and it comes from that noumenal side of us that very possibility for freedom it's almost breaching through uh, but don't don't think it actually does breach through. And the thing, the kind of tool that we have that for Kant allows this, um, you know, kind of chiasma, this kind of moving between the, the phenomenal and the noumenal world is reason. Because reason derives from the phenomenal world, but gives us the capacity to conceptualize the noumenal world. So it bridges the two. And even more, as humans, we seem to have a natural capacity to experience. And that capacity to experience turns disparate data into, through the understanding, into things we can know. And since we have this kind of mastery, if I can call it that, over the phenomenal world, over appearances, it demonstrates, and it's with only the pos- the smallest possibility that we have, you know, this our capacities derive from this noumenal world, and therefore we have this tiny potential of having freedom. So, in reason's application, then, uh, not only as a as a you know a pure thing, a thing that only thinks about you know speculation, speculating the the noumenal world. Suddenly, we can see reason as a kind of practical enterprise we see it being applied then to the very ground of uh, of our experiences in the world and it is that that kant says it moves from its place in transcendence into imminence it becomes part of us and it becomes part of our experiences 
imminent that that is within, not separate or transcendent that is outside of or above, you know, to... We know what transcend means, to, to exist at a, at a higher plateau, you know, outside of the realm of all possibility. So what does this mean, that there might be possibility? Well, he tells us, By a concept of the practical reason, I understand the idea of an object as an effect possible to be produced through freedom. And these objects for him are good and evil where he defines the good and, you know, forget everything you know about good corresponding to some kind of, like, culturally determined moral law. He says the following. He says that good is desired according to a principle of reason, whereas evil is shunned according to a principle of reason. And good and evil, then, belong to the will, as opposed that he makes the distinction between, like, wellness and illness that are, you know, corporeal, that is, bodily feelings. Good and evil transcend that to some extent. And so no object or explicit action can be deemed good or evil because that would then, you know, bring it into the empirical world. So the only way we can actually determine what is good and evil is if we, you know, through a priori uh, or pure practical reason, apply this in the determination of the will. And then we apply that to determine what is good and evil in, in the world. So we can undertake this by looking at the categories that he draws up from it, the various kind of possibilities of of actions in the world. So this is kind of dry, but I'm just going to list them off. There are four different camps, and these camps are, or I guess, forms. The first camp relates to the quantity, the second one to the quality, the third one to the relations between people, between actors, um, and the fourth to the modality. So... And these can be further uh, taxonomized into the following. The quantity can be either subjective, which is a maxim. It can be objective, which is a, a precept or, or uh, you know, a principle, not a law. Uh, or it can be a priori, both objective and subjective principles of freedom, which are laws. Then there is quality, which is the uh, practical rules of action, the practical rules of omission, and the practical rules of exception. So what you, you know can do what you shouldn't do and you know where the exceptions lie relations they refer to the personality uh to the conditions of the person the reciprocation of one person to the conditions of the others so these are all playing a part in you know determining the person's acting in the world and then you have the modality which is the permitted and the forbidden duty and and the contrary to duty and then you have the perfect and the imperfect duty and these are universal, like the categories that he presents in the Critique of Pure Reason. They are universal. And because of that, we can then speculate, again, there's this sliver of hope that they derive from some kind of thing we could call a law or a structure, I could say, that exists beneath and that kind of proffers up, that holds up um, the phenomenal world. So I just want to emphasize one more time that we don't really get too much into the, the categorical imperative here. That is really more found in the groundwork of the metaphysic of morals, where he lays out its three different forms. Um, and, you know, just off the top of my head, they are treat, if you can treat a maxim as though it is a universal law, or treat a maxim, every maxim, as though it could be a universal law, treat every human as a, a rational being with their own capacity to co- 
provide these maxims as universal laws and then treat yourself and every other human as an end in themselves i believe um, but go and listen to that if you want more on the categorical imperative and we'll get into more of it here but it's I just really want to stress there's more of it in that book so because he said that no moral law can be um you know shown right off the bat to produce or the or the um, the satisfaction of a moral law to produce a kind of feeling of happiness or joy in the human in the in the phenomenal world he says how can we know then of the moral law like what is that connecting thread to experience and he calls it respect and he says that the feeling of respect for the moral law and these aren't his words um this comes about through our intellects acknowledging its existence that is the respect for ourselves within the moral law and the propensity that we have to respect it and it reveals the kind of the illusory nature of self-love uh and how if we hinge every one of our uh kind of precepts our maxims on satisfying our desires that won't lead to uh fulfillment or our capacity to respect moral laws because we are not interested in the form of arriving at a universal law we are not interested in in this work and so we constantly deceive ourselves at least if we you know go too hard for the for desire and joy and happiness you know bodily pleasures maybe to be a little puritanical about it uh, instead of about the form of the law itself or the form of the action the form of the duty and insofar as not satisfying the moral law produce or satisfying it might not produce happiness but not satisfying it might produce um a lack of fulfillment maybe and it might produce a lack of um it might produce a kind of sadness as he, as he kind of calls it and he says that it that shows us that there is some connection to the moral law and you know to critique kant for a second he is hinging a lot of this on um the hope that there are indeed these universal laws right and that they can be realized in uh material form but who's to say that this world is not just you know a haphazard construction of just pure um you know incidents you know these consequences of absolutely nothing um a, a blip in the moment of 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 history um in in the universe in anything else and like everything else the universe will fade into nothingness and there will be left no moral laws because they didn't exist in the first place i mean to be a little grim about it um but he holds firm to the idea that if you didn't if we just lived our lives as though there was no possibility that our actions could be treated as a universal law at some point even if just one action uh then he would say we really don't have a reason to live we really don't have um it it just doesn't jive with us as humans to think that nothing has any meaning nothing uh is 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 consequential at all because humans do things that are quite extraordinary and that we ponder the existence of god we ponder the existence of action we weigh actions against one another to determine what is best not only for ourselves but best for the action itself which is where kant is kind of giving his 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 faith 
And this can really only come from ourselves. And he, he criticizes, you know, kind of blind religious sentiment here where, you know, humans might be told to, you know, act in the image of God. Uh, or if, you know, they're told that they'll get divine reward at the end of their lives. Kant is like, none of that can be an example of the moral law because it introduces an exterior object to the will. That is the promise of divine reward or, you know, bodily satisfaction or enjoyment, pleasure, you know, that will be bestowed upon you by God if you act correctly. Kant says none of these are examples of the moral law. And that propels us here into the dialectic of pure practical reason, which is where he lays out some of the problems that we need to circumvent, we need to at least address before we can, you know, really claim that we've arrived. So whereas, pra uh, sorry, whereas pure reason uh, kind of lied to itself by claiming to uh, prove the existence of God or immortality of the soul or the infinite or, you know, anything like that, he says that the problem presented here with pure practical reason is that it might put too much emphasis on a thing coming from the Greeks, uh, the summum bonum, which is the highest good, or kind of like the best life, which is uh, to him kind of an illusory possibility. And that he, w he wants to maintain that it's possible, but he says we have to be very careful not to like, you know, put it up on this pedestal that is uh, transcended. It exists outside of the realm of human experience or exists outside of the phenomenal world where that's exactly where he wants to situate it. So this is how the dialectic goes. So insofar as the summum bonum, the highest good, is contingent upon happiness and virtue, as the ancient Greeks uh, thought it. Think of Aristotle might be the best example where he was, you know, screaming night and day about the wonders of virtue and leading to the kind of virtuous, you know, summum bonum, the, the highest good. So he says, insofar as this highest good is contingent upon happiness and virtue, it must follow that either the virtuousness of our maxims, that is our own subjective principles, leads to happiness, or we, in having attained happiness, erect maxims to maintain that happiness. So let me re rephrase that. So either we have maxims, that is these subjective principles that lead to happiness, or we have happiness and we're like, wow, we've got to We've got to keep this going. Let's set up principles to maintain this kind of happiness. So this is where the problem lies for Kant, in that one of them posits that happiness can only come by setting out these these principles, almost these subjective laws. These laws only people are meant to follow, and we get this all throughout, you know, theology. Theology with like, um, and this is in Foucault recounts this pretty well in the fourth volume of the History of Sexuality, which I hope to do on here one day. And yes, I said that right. The fourth volume hasn't been translated yet. But um, anyways, um, where, you know, the, the ancient Christian fathers, or at least at the, you know, before the Middle Ages around that time, were setting out, you know, basic precepts that you had to follow in order to exist properly in the eyes of God. So that's what one camp is saying here, that we set out these principles. You follow them, you'll be happy. The other side says, oh, we're happy. Let's keep this going. Let's set up principles to maintain this. So it can't be both. Now, the way he gets around this, and this is the way he kind of got around this in the first critique, the critique of pure reason, is to show that one of them 
or, or they actually happen. They are they do happen at the same time. But the only way they happen at the same time is because one is found in the noumenal world and one is found in the phenomenal world. So the noumenal argument we can't know, right? Because it's it's beyond our comprehension. It's about our thinking. So one of the ideas, the idea that happy happiness potentiates virtue, uh, is totally wrong for him. It can't. We can't prove that because that would say that we arrive at virtue, which is this kind of respect, this accordance with the moral law, through empirical experience, which he's obviously wary of. But he says that the idea that virtue supplies happiness is possible. There is a possibility there. But he says he says it's only it's only they're both wrong to him, but he says that this one is less wrong. So we know that it's much more likely that the noumenal world where virtue is, if we attain some of it in our own phenomenal world, then we might produce happiness. It's possible. Whereas we can't really expect that anything in the phenomenal world is going to affect something in the noumenal world that is virtue or happiness is going to affect virtue. Now, this is where it gets interesting. So he's already shown that freedom is possible, but now he says, why not take this further? He's like, if I can show that freedom exists, because as he's very right, freedom is a a kind of freedom from the principle of cause and effect, which is kind of a negative definition. It doesn't actually tell us anything about freedom. Insofar as that's the case, He's like, maybe it's possible for me to prove the other things we were stuck with. That is God and infinity from the first critique. So how does he do that? Well, he says that if there's a moral law, we can only ascribe this to an author, right? And this is kind of Descartes' thing. We can only prescribe, associate this with some kind of author that put it there, that follows some structure, doesn't just come out of nowhere, and only God has act, can can emulate it. Humans can't. Humans can only try, and they might try to employ these categorical imperatives that I just very basically set out here. Again, go listen to my other video or read the groundwork to get more of that. Um, but he's like, okay, if only God has access to it, isn't it possible then? And he's leaving a little bit of sliver of hope there. He's like, isn't it possible that God exists or is that author of these moral laws? And he prays almost, he's like, and let let us hope then that God keeps humanity going for infinity because that is the only possibility we have at arriving at this thing called the highest good because it's only accessible to God. We don't have access to it, but maybe with enough time we could get there. Now, he extrapolates from this his kind of proof of God, where he says this. Now, a being that is capable of acting on the conception of laws is an an intelligence, which is a rational being, a human. And the causality of such a being, according to this conception of laws, is his will. Therefore, the supreme cause of nature, God, which must be presupposed as a condition of the summum bonum, the highest good, is a being which is the cause of nature by intelligence and will. Consequently, its author, that is God. So because we have this will, we're pretty sure of, and we have this kind of rationality, this capacity for reason, then that must have derived from something that held a capacity for reason and that did it of their own accord. 
or created it of their own will. And he uses Christianity to kind of illustrate this where like heaven is infinite and it's only in an infinite setting that humans might uh, be able to arrive at the summum bonum and, you know, how, uh, you know, the shining example we are in God's eyes uh, is only ever realized in our being good and, and, and through happiness and yada, yada, yada. I don't care much for the Christian examples, but and he gives it, you know, it's here and I got to talk about it. But as he shows and he gives like it's it's a decent argument, I think um, he's like there. I have shown through practical reason pure practical reason, not pure reason, how we can have the existence of God, uh, which he was like, look, in the first critique, pure reason can't do it. So it might have been easy to come out, and I know I did, I came out of reading the first critique thinking, oh, well, 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 what's the point of anything? I still found it magnificent, probably the best book I've ever read, but I was like, what's the point? We have nothing now. What can we do with this? And this book is him saying, this is what we do with this. Let's turn to experience that possibility of experience, the possibility of our capacity to act in accordance with the will in the form of this categorical imperative, which is the meeting of a maxim with a universal law in the imperative, thou shalt act as though your maxim could be a universal law, where we see the possibility of the, you know this universality of this noumenon of this connection to the transcendent to the divine not through reason but through uh, through our experience in the world and this propels us here into the last section in which he kind of lays out how we can do this the metho- methodology of pure practical reason and by this method he means in his words the mode in which we can just we can give the laws of pure practical reason access to the human mind and influence on its maxims that is by which we can make the objectively practical reason subjectively practical also and this last section is riddled with a lot of negative evidence you know him saying like oh well this doesn't work and this doesn't work and it's not really important for me to lay it out and there's a lot of repetition but it arrives here he says when someone or when yeah when someone dreads nothing more than to find themselves on self-examination worthless and contemptible in his own eyes then every good moral disposition can be grafted onto it because this is the best nay the only guard that can keep off from the mind the pressure of ennoble and corrupting motives so in english what that means for him is when someone does something not because of what they might get out of it but because they know it's something they must do lest they feel as though they've been i guess corrupted or worthless and contemptible because they didn't do the thing they knew they had to do it is only then or that is the only guard against you know giving oneself over to just desire per se or or just your own uh, individual wants or needs um and so i will i will do the cardinal sin i'll give an example let's say um let's say i had the opportunity to save someone uh but it would come at the expense of my own my own life and it would hurt too let's say it would hurt a lot and upon death 
I would not be, um, I would not be cherished or celebrated. I would actually, I might be lamented or admonished. I might be uh, seen as actually an enemy in the whole thing, where I only know to myself to have done the right thing. And it, you know, I save someone in the process. But I don't do it to derive any happiness because it's going to hurt. No one is going to appreciate me after the fact. I don't do it for the big, I might not even like the person. Hope, let's actually, let's add that condition. You don't even like the person you're doing it for. But if there was an example in which someone felt themselves totally compelled, despite all their experiences, all their, you know, knowledge they possessed to commit an act that otherwise they wouldn't have any um, recourse to look at themselves in the eye again, you know, if they didn't do it, they would feel terrible, then maybe that might be an example of someone abiding by the categorical imperative for they acted in such a way as it must have been done, not because of any reward, but because of the act itself needing to be done as though it came to them from God, from the transcendent, from the noumenon. It was something that you weren't taught. It was just something that had to be done. But that take that with a grain of salt because that's too specific. It's too much grounded in experience to really have any place in what Kant's doing here or what he did here in laying out that it is the form, the very capacity, the, the, the function of law itself, not in its realization in any way because it's only God that can act in such a way as to completely abide by the moral law and the categorical imperative. And he leaves us with this. He says, we must as philosophers defend this science that he lays out. It's kind of new science of pure practical reason. That is the narrow gate that leads us to the true doctrine of practical reason, which is, like he said, the determination of the will. And that more or less covers it. Um, One more time. If you want more of the categorical imperative, that's really in the groundwork of the metaphysic of of morals. So go listen to that. Go read that. It's short. Um, it's not too difficult. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if I did anything wrong or I said anything incorrect, then I would love it if you let me know. But obviously don't put in the labor if you don't want to. And yeah, take care. <laughs>